A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. This episode contains explicit language. You remember those Sunkiss jelly candies? They're like green, orange, big gummy. Yeah, with like the sugar coating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love that. So that was like my petite four after. <laughs> and I always knew I was destined for great things because I always had a very expensive taste in candy. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, I'm talking with Lester Walker, Pierre Soreau, and John Gray, who you just heard. They're the guys behind Ghetto Gastro, a Bronx-based culinary collective. They've been a unit for about a decade, and they keep busy. They do high-end food events all over the world, from the Grammys to the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia. They've got a line of products, from waffle mixes to air fryers. And last fall, Ghetto Gastro released their first cookbook, Black Power Kitchen. The book includes recipes, of course, but also art, fashion, and politics. The guys describe Black Power Kitchen as part cookbook, part manifesto, created with big Bronx energy. Now, if you're thinking it sounds like Ghetto Gastro has a wide range of projects going on, you're right. These guys are creatives who follow their passions. As John says, sometimes that means their work doesn't have a neat and tidy elevator pitch. I think early on, (laughs) I told myself, when this becomes easy to explain, that's probably when I'll get bored with it. It's multitudes. It's a a lot of different things. But still trying to figure out that that one-liner, and let's hope when we do... I won't be bored with it. (laughs) (laughs) If Ghetto Gastro does have one unifying theme, it's the Bronx, a borough of New York City that's often ignored by major media outlets, even though it's long been an epicenter of culture. After all, this is where hip-hop was born. Ghetto Gastro presents Bronx culture as high culture. One of their first big events was for Microsoft in Nice in 2014. They called it the South Bronx in the South of France. We got the approval, then we had to figure out how to do it, right? Never been to the south of France. And we're not responsible for just the food. We're responsible for the whole damn thing. The decor. The the... decor, the DJ, the speakers, the fucking scenic. Went to the Salvation Army to forage for records, like hip-hop records, because we used the records as the placemats. Mm -hmm. Got a whole bunch of old sneakers in Salvation Army, too, because we did, like, a sneaker chandelier. Like, if you go to the hood, you'll see... Sneakers hanging off a telephone wire. So we recreated that and did strung it over the pool. But we shipped all of that. Nutcracker bottles. What was on the menu at that event? <sighs> Damn. We did pizza. We did fish. We did a fly booyah base out there with all of these different seafood crustaceans that we got out there in Nice. And the way we had to do it, we didn't have a commercial kitchen. We had to get three small Airbnbs. And use all three kitchens. And oh if you've ever God. been to Europe, you know the size of those stoves and those fridges. And it was it was mission impossible. But once we did that, it was like, oh, we could literally do anything. Am I right that, that in French, Le Bronx is sort of like... It's a fucked up kind of. It's like describing something as disarray, right? in disarray or like a mess or whatever, like an old phrase. But 
But yeah, so we 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 showed them what it's really about and how we really giving it up. John's from the Bronx. Today he lives in a high rise across the street from the building he grew up in. That's where I met up with all three of the guys. For John, food was an early passion. As a seven-year-old, he was in charge of ordering for the whole family when they went out to eat. By age 10, he was reading cookbooks in bed. Yeah, I used to read The Joy of Cooking as a kid. I actually have a copy in the back that my friend Suzanne gave me for a birthday gift like 13 years ago. And then I went back and revisited. I'm like, wow, this is like a dense bit of reading. Like, I'll be reading rotisserie chicken recipe for three days. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like a lot of work. Right. As a teenager and young adult, John went through a lot, including a time when he sold drugs. But even then, food was a priority. Even when I was hustling, I would I would hustle. I would drive around with the Zagat guide and pick my meals based on where I was doing runs during the day, like in Manhattan or whatever. So if it was a lunch spot, like I, I discovered and found a lot of spots like that. So I, I was always about this this food. Like food was always my kind of respite from that life. John doesn't want to go back to those days, but he is quick to tell me how good he was at the business end of the trade. It seems he's a born entrepreneur. In the mid-2000s, he went deep into the world of fashion, ran a successful denim company. His jeans were in Bergdorf Goodman. Then the recession hit, and the company folded in 2009. Around this time, he reconnected with one of his childhood friends from the neighborhood. I'm Chef Lester Walker. I'm the vibe facilitator, storyteller, chef. While John's a businessman at heart, Lester is more of a philosopher, an artist. When he and John reconnected, Lester had become a trained chef. He'd ended up in culinary school after winning an omelet-making competition in high school. I was practicing making omelets for like two weeks every day after school, and I think I came in like third place, and they gave me $10,000 to go to culinary school. That's one thing that I realized gave me confidence and made me feel like I, I can accomplish things and 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 bring something to the table, you know? Because you, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. After culinary school, Lester cooked at high-end places like 11 Madison Park and worked with famous chefs like Jean-Georges. Then one day, some producers from Chopped happened to visit the restaurant where he was working. And I made a special soup that day. It was a lemongrass, ginger, like shrimp, coconut-based, you know, type of sauce, type of soup. You know, I learned how to get intricate with layering different flavors and Adding fish sauce at the end, you know, for mommy, learn how to get busy like that. One of the producers came back to the kitchen and asked him, would you like to audition for Chopped? He responded, what's Chopped? The producers cast him in an episode. I didn't want to overcook the fish. By the time the judges get the fish, it'll be perfect. My pride and glory is at stake right now. But if I can actually win this competition, the sky's the limit, really, man. Lester won. Around the same time, he and John started hanging out more, going downtown for dinners, bonding over their interest in art. But there would be one more person who would enter the mix. What's up? I'm Pierre Siro, Chef P. Chef P and I met in the gym. Here's John again. And I overheard P talking with our boy Tone about some tartare morimoto. And that's an unusual gym conversation, and especially... You don't necessarily hear a lot of brothers talking about Tartar and Morimoto because when you go to these restaurants, you don't see us in them often. John learned that P wasn't from the Bronx. He grew up between Barbados, where his dad's from, and Hartford, Connecticut, where his mom's from. A lot of the people in his family went to culinary school and cooked professionally in the U.S. and Barbados. 
So when he was 19, Chef P followed in their footsteps and went to culinary school in Piedmont in Northern Italy. That was really my first introduction into any other part of the world. Learned the language, learned how to make pasta and breads and rices and stuff like that, and how to uh, freak some of the some of the European techniques and stuff like that, which um, have influenced a lot of the the food that we that I make now. Except, I take a lot of those European influences and connect them with some of the traditions that our ancestors have taught us. After Italy, Chef P moved back to Barbados, where he quickly developed a reputation because of his experience in Europe. He ended up cooking for Jay-Z and Beyonce, among others. When celebrities would come into the island, be it whoever it is, the Beckhams, Hove, and B, I would be one of the chefs that they would tap to cook for those people. And I fucking hated that job. So I didn't that didn't last very long. Why? Because I don't I like to be of service for people, but I don't want to be like the help. And when you're working in spaces like that, it's a lot of entourage, it's a lot of other people with requests and this and that. P wasn't interested in being ordered around by all those other people. Yeah, yeah that, that, that didn't last that long. <laughs> P headed to New York where he met John that day at the gym and soon connected with Lester. The three of them hit it off. And in 2014, Ghetto Gastro was complete. They called it a culinary collective. In the beginning, they did small-scale events, mostly house parties. Lester and Chef P would cook. John would run the event and handle the business side of things, earning the nickname The Dishwasher. Yeah, we started doing house parties at my crib. So one of the reasons I got the name The Dishwasher is because when Lester and the other homies would cook, they just leave mad dishes in my sink. <laughs> but I also clean them dishes when it comes to busting down spread and the last but not least reasons because you could be definitely bet on me to be the one to rinse your pockets when it comes to <laughs> securing a bag. I right. need I need it all. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'll leave you with some toll money to leave, but <laughs> everything it. you came with, run, the pocket. run it. <laughs> Reparations. These early events already had the ideas that Ghetto Gastro would build upon, reimagining and repackaging Bronx culture. But imagine like a four-foot Home Depot table Newspaper as a tablecloth and not enough plates, like just 40s. 40s, yeah, yeah. We're using 40s as the water carafes. Yeah, we just doing 40s and shorties cooking down ribeyes and and uh and and malt liquor and shit like that. But uh, we also had foie gras torsions, we also had the best caviar. The guys made a name for themselves. Soon, corporate brands started hiring them for events, like the one they did in the south of France with the sneaker chandelier and the bouillabaisse. Today, Ghetto Gastro has done events around the world for Cartier, Netflix, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It goes on. John says it costs a quarter million dollars to get Ghetto Gastro for your business. And as I said, they've expanded into home appliances and foods. Their waffle mixes include flavors and ingredients of the African diaspora, cassava, sorghum, and coconut sugar. And their so-called sovereign syrup is a combination of sorghum, apple cider, and maple syrups, which were common sweeteners before refined sugars came along. They're collaborating with the kitchen gear company Crux to sell sleek toasters, waffle makers, and more. And through their work, there's always a thread leading back to the Bronx. In 2020, when Black and Latino communities experienced higher rates of food hardship because of the pandemic, Ghetto Gastro partnered with Rethink Food, a local nonprofit that helps restaurants make free food for those in need. They served more than 30,000 free meals in the Bronx that year. 
we kind of consider ourselves the Robin Hoods of this thing. So taking from the rich, giving to the needy. And when we talk about doing things in our community and being pillars of our community, when our community needs us, we make sure that we're there as a resource to step up and help. You and know? to show that two truths exist. Like you could do stuff that is considered whatever, luxury, expensive, but you could also do the groundwork and collaborate with people within communities that have been historically underestimated. And of course, like you see where I live, like I'm here, <laughs> you know, we're here. So it's like, you can't, you can't ignore what's going on. It's like, we still have family members living below the poverty line, dealing with incarceration. Like, so these are issues that affect us. So it's like cool to traverse the globe and do the Grammys and work with luxury brands. But, you know, that type of thing could be vapid. Like you actually have to like really do some human things. And and I also think folks like us, black people, people from communities like ours, we don't have the privilege to just exist in another world because we're, we're constantly reminded where we stand, what we are and the, the state of being. One thing you hear people say a lot is food brings people together. But you also talk about, I've heard you say food is a weapon. Mm -hmm. Food doesn't always bring people together. I think it's more complicated than that. Definitely, because it's, a, it's a definitely a big identifier of class, access, resources. It's another platform in which you could definitely clearly see systemic issues or underinvested in people, underestimated people based on the availability and access to fresh, nutritious, delicious food. You know, early and often since our ancestors were enslaved, you know, a lot of times people from our culture were forced to make the best with what was available to them, whether it was offcuts, scraps, so in, in, in a way, even in today's modern society, these communities are still dealing with the scraps. Like you look at East Palo Alto as an example. You know, you have probably a lot, of, a lot of the richest people on the planet that live in Palo Alto. But then on the east side, you're dealing with environmental insecurity, lack of food access, all of these things. And a similar thing is with the Bronx. Like we're home to the largest food distribution center of its kind globally, Hunts Point, the meat market. And, and, and huge amounts of the food that is served in some of the top restaurants in New York all comes in through that market. Exactly. And, and yet. And, then, and yet, right around that market within like a mile radius, it's an extremely food insecure place. The area around the Hunts Point market is one some would call the ghetto. When the guys chose to call themselves ghetto gastro, they chose that word very intentionally. We're not trying to make the word ghetto seem cool and palatable to white people. It's really about, you know, rejecting necessary respectability politics within our own community, having an internal conversation like, yeah, we're black. Our food is a global food. It's not just mac and cheese. We love mac and cheese, but it's not just that and collard greens. We can add layers and it's, blackness is blurry. It's, it's a def definitely a lot of ways to act black and be black. But we're going to bring you the unapologetic street side and still demand a premium because for so long our culture has been extracted and the value has been extracted. But now it's time for us 
to capture the value. And we want to show that you could do that in a form, in a fashion that's unapologetic, that's that's uncompromising, that's fun, that's community-driven, all the things. If food is a weapon, the guys from Ghetto Gastro are trying to wield it bring resources to the Bronx, and also to bring the Bronx's contributions to the world. That's their approach in their first book, Black Power Kitchen. It includes recipes for dishes like their take on chopped cheese. Now, the chopped cheese is a classic sandwich in the corner markets of Harlem and the Bronx, traditionally made with chopped up ground beef, cooked down with onions and peppers and American cheese, served on a roll. In their book, Ghetto Gastro calls it a hood staple. But Lester says... I don't really eat chopped cheeses. My claim to fame with the chopped cheese is turning into a chopped steez. And I feel like that's more valuable than, you know, eating processed chopped meat. Lester's chopped steez is a vegan version of the sandwich that uses plant-based ground meat and cheese, flaky sea salt, heirloom tomatoes, and aioli made from aquafaba, which is the liquid left over from cooked chickpeas. It's more to my claim to fame and how I want to tell the, the story, my story, an alternate story using alternate ingredients to something typical and something classic. I'm not classic. I'm from the Bronx. We remix things. We remix music. You know, that's what we do. Our creativity is our currency. Chopped cheese is a very sturdy sandwich that supports your hunger, supports your expenses, and it's a typical blue-collar meal. But I want to reverse the narrative on what a chopped cheese is and introduce people to the chopsteez, because that's the future. The book also includes recipes inspired by some of the guy's favorite Bronx restaurants, as well as a deconstructed apple pie inspired by Black Lives Matter. In the book, that pie is depicted alongside a chalk outline of a body. And if you continue flipping through the pages of Black Power Kitchen, you'll find much more. After all, these guys never do just one thing. There are essays on redlining, interviews with people like rapper ASAP Ferg and museum director Thelma Golden, There are poems, paintings, and portraits of people from the Bronx. We're in the Bronx right now at John's place, but I want to go out and see a bit of the borough through their eyes. Plus, we all seem a little hungry. As we've been talking, John's been chowing down on a bowl of pasta that Chef P made. My boy really over here busting down that spread while we have this interview. (laughs) Everyone's welcome to eat at any time during any sporkful recording, so knock yourself out. He's got a sporkful right now. (laughs) Do you hear any lips smacking in the back? John's over here putting away a plate of pasta. <laughs> Wait. Coming up after the break, John, Lester, Chef P, and I visit some of the places in the Bronx that inspire the recipes in their book, and we eat. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. 
And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week on the show, I talked with Zara Tabatabai, who created Back Home Beer. Zara heard stories all her life about her grandfather in Iran, who brewed beer before the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Then, a visit with her grandmother a few years back gave her an idea. She made a comment in passing about how she missed the taste of my grandfather's beer. She said something like, I miss the taste of that beer. That's what I could use right now. And that sparked interest in me, and I thought, well, I've got free time. Let me figure this out. It can't be that hard. Let me check out some YouTube videos, and I'm going to make this beer. I'm going to make it. I'm going to send the bottles down. Let's see if we can make the taste that she's looking for. As she learned to make beer, Zara also learned about the long history of beer brewing in Iran, which is at odds with the image most Americans have of Iranian people. 
In the episode, we also talk with a home brewer in Iran who continues to make beer despite the harsh penalties. That episode's up now. Check it out. Now back to my conversation with John Gray, Lester Walker, and Pierre Serrault of Ghetto Gastro. All right, let's hit it. All three of these spots inspired. We're getting the trifecta. You're getting the source material tour right now. (laughs) They're going to show me three places they've been going to for a long time that influenced recipes in their book, Black Power Kitchen. Lester and Chef P go ahead separately. They'll meet us at the second stop. I'm in the car with John. First stop, Kingston Tropical Bakery. It's been around for more than 50 years, and they specialize in Jamaican patties and cocoa bread, an airy sweet bread made with coconut. Kingston Tropical was one of the first bakeries in the area to cater to Caribbean customers. Ghetto Gastro's book includes a recipe for a high-bridge plantain patty. High-bridge is a neighborhood in the South Bronx near Yankee Stadium. We did our own rendition of a patty inspired by this type of Jamaican patty, um, but the filling in it is, is plantains and collard greens. Bringing together collard greens and plantains blends the flavors of the Caribbean and West African diasporas, both of which are well represented in the Bronx, all inside a flaky pastry. Just to kind of talk about like the Black American coalition and the, the, the merging of cultures with like Black, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Black American, because there's Black people from all of those places. But it's like the, the cultural nuances like and the similarities. Like, even when you think about Africa, plantains are heavily used throughout Africa and diff- all throughout the diaspora, you know, especially in the Caribbean. Well, and, and just right here, as we just turn on to the main drag, in one block, you see Kennedy fried chicken, Chinese food. Then you see African Indian Caribbean food market. Champion Bakery, West you Indian see a Puerto specialties. Rican flag flying, a right? Puerto Rican flag in the window. The rainbow. Right. This is the culture. This is where it happens. And here we see uh, Spanish meat markets. Mm-hmm. You drive down a road like this, and you really do understand why the Bronx is known for remixing. Tell me, tell me what you see. Well, just, just it, literally from one door to the next, you're seeing all different kinds of cultures, all different kinds of influences all smashed up right up against each other. That's just cross-pollination. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's how things come together, right? All right, we're here? We are here, we're gonna go grab whatever. Kingston Tropical mostly looks like a classic bakery, a counter with a glass case full of breads and cakes, shelves behind the counter with more goodies. Then to the side, there are the patties in a windowed hot box. Are we getting, how many, how many patties should we get? How many people do you want to try the patty in your life? <laughs> Can I please have uh, two chicken and two vegetable and two cocoa bread, please? Is that a good order, John? That's a good order, yeah. Thank you, appreciate it. We take our patties to go and walk out the door. Outside, there's a white guy eating a patty on the sidewalk, and he immediately catches John's eye. How do you know about this spot? <laughs> I know it's noisy with the train, but John's asking him, how do you know about this spot? How do you find out about this spot? The guy's got a mouthful of food. At first, he waves us away. He doesn't want to talk on the mic, but John chats with him for a minute and reports back. He says they had a honey up here. And just to give you a visual, that was like a white dude with an Archerex jacket. (laughs) I was just curious. I don't don't see a lot of of, of white cats up here. Yeah, (laughs) but also it's like, 
things didn't work out with the girl, but he's still coming for the patties. <laughs> patties in hand, we head to our next stop. On the way, John and I keep chatting about Ghetto Gastro's book and its depiction of the Bronx. People have an idea of what it's like, and often it's related to hardship, right? People think that. They think, oh, shit, I'm not going up there. <laughs> and a lot of it is because of the media, right? People people saw the Bronx burning in the 70s. They feel like it's not a reason for them to come up here. So wanting to put that on, a, on our back and really represent where we're from was definitely a big part of the project. And our co-author, Osai, co-collaborator, co-conspirator, all of the things, you know, she spent... A lot of time up here visiting these spots for us to be able to, and just listening to our stories and so we could put those words on a page. John's talking about Osai Endelin. She co-wrote the book with the guys. You might remember Osai from our episodes on Plantation Rum. We met with a lot of people to think about collaborating on this with. And I knew she was the one from the jacket she was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> she, what, what was the jacket? She was wearing like a powder blue Montclair jacket. So I was like... All right, this is, this is, we can rock with this. <laughs> you understand, you're going to get the nuances of, a, of what we what we talking about here. A big part of what we do is the style. And I think you have to be able to appreciate all of the elements, you know, from the activism, the politics, right? That, that vibe, the blackness of it, but also the style of it. Like it's a, a certain gentle say quiet. All right, here we are. We are right. for roses. <clears throat> Get them a sharpie. Oh, this looks promising. We walk into Feroza's roti shop, and it has all the hallmarks of a great place. First off, there's a line, so everyone in the neighborhood clearly knows about it. Second, no frills, no seating, just a long counter on one side with a register at the end where you order. Third, at the register, I see the friendly face of an older woman who's clearly been running this roti shop for a long time. I would learn that she is Feroza herself, whose portrait is featured in Black Power Kitchen. She inspired Ghetto Gastro's recipe for curry chickpeas, stewed with coconut milk, lemongrass, and scotch bonnet peppers, among other things. In the book, they describe the dish as a little trini, a little BX, and a lot of bliss. Those chickpeas are one of many potential fillings for a roti, which is a light but chewy flatbread that arrived in the Caribbean via Indian indentured servants brought over by the British. By the time John and I arrive, Les and P have already ordered for us. P, what'd you order? I got a double and I got a chicken and potato roti with tamarind and pepper sauce on it. Oh. And we got you a veg with a double as well. Oh, fantastic. Did I get tamarind sauce? Yeah, tamarind and pepper. I put everything on it. Oh, perfect. Blessing for Rosa, who's always blessed us. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Appreciate y'all. Now trying to fit four patties, two coconut breads, a double, and a roti in the bag that's meant to hold my recording equipment. (laughs) We're moving on to our final stop. But by this time, I'm pretty hungry. Am I allowed to take a bite of this food in your car, John? Hell yeah. Okay. I eat so much food out here. I got my double here. Yeah, the double's good. It won't, it won't, it won't crumble too much. Of course, a double is so named because it's two small, round, pillowy fried breads with some kind of filling. In this case, chickpeas and more. Oh my god! Was that Scotch bonnet peppers I smell? Probably some Scotch bonnet, some black pepper, and some tamarind. Mm. That's exactly what it is, and it's such yeah. a good combo. Scotch bonnet pepper is my all-time favorite hot pepper. 
do. Mm. You're right though. You got you got the spice and the scotch bottle, then you got the tamarind. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like tangy and tart and sweet. Yeah. It's got everything going. Trini culture, you have so many cultures just within. You have like East Indian, and you have the African and the indigenous. You know, like so it's it's like layers on layers. Because Trinidadian food is a remix in its own when you have the collision of all of these cultures. Right? I took three bites and I managed to spill something on myself. I'll never wear light colored shirts because it, it's <laughs> like a white shirt for me is a one wear. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean. We've arrived at our final stop, Green Garden Juice Bar and Health Food Store. John says this place basically raised him and Lester. The store is on a busy street across from an elevated train. But once you step inside, it's like an oasis, calm with the sweet smell of fresh fruit. In Black Power Kitchen, the guys have a juice recipe inspired by Green Garden. It's called Green for the Money Juice, with celery, kale, cucumber, and black seed oil. John called ahead, so our juices are already waiting for us. Oh, is my green juice? Awesome. Can you just describe the green juice to me? What's inside? Combination fresh green, spinach, moringa, probiotic blend, own homemade sea moss, little spice to give it that tremendous flavor at the end. This is Vaughn Mitchell. His dad, Brother Roy, opened the store in 1984. There's a mural of him on the wall. When Brother Roy died, Vaughn took over. John gives him a copy of Black Power Kitchen. Vaughn's heard about it. He's even featured in it. But this is the first time he's seeing it. He thumbs through the pages. It's beautiful. And just to see so much different culture in one place and then handle with so much care, like, you don't see that enough. Just putting a real artistic, high-end flair on something that people take as mundane. You know what I'm saying? Which is unfortunate because there's so much beauty in it. This book is going to outlive us, man. And I'm glad you could be a part of that with us. That green juice was thick and satisfying with a nice hit of peppery ginger at the end. Later, I would feast on my chicken patty and flaky pastry crust and perfectly spiced veggies and a chewy roti. I picked up some papaya-based scotch bonnet pepper hot sauce at Green Garden and added some of that to the roti. All those flavors and foods coming together from all over the world and all over the Bronx... It was like a remix in my mouth, and one that requires a lot of skill to do right, which I think is a big part of what Ghetto Gastro is saying when they highlight these flavors in their book and in their glitzy events. While that may not be the all-encompassing tagline they're still searching for, they've taken to saying they want to elevate your plate. Back in John's apartment, I had a question for them. A word we hear a lot in food is elevate. So-and-so chef came along and elevated but, like, to elevate, you're kind of assuming... Something uh, needs to be fixed. Right, and you're assuming a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Except for something to go up to be elevated, it has to be down to start with. And often we hear that word applied when uh, foods associated with brown or black people get European techniques applied to them, and suddenly they have been, quote-unquote, elevated. Um, what are your thoughts on that word, when we think about hierarchy and social, highbrow, lowbrow, whatever, that's really the art in Ghetto Gastro is to to change the common perception of these ideas, right? Because you, you hit on it. Like, often when people think of something Eurocentric or coming from Europe and it's applied to something else, they think it it's elevation. But I, I really think it's 
the reverse. Like people often think Mexican food's supposed to be fast and cheap, but when they see a $14 taco that has incredibly expensive ingredients, a lot of labor that goes into making a tortilla, it's like those are elevated techniques. Like when you look at the nixmalization of masa and that being done centuries ago, those are elevated techniques. You think about where bread was first created in North Africa, those are elevated techniques. You know, I think we've just dealt with bad marketing for centuries, you know? So it's really thinking about how we reframe these ideas. And that's really the art in Ghetto Gas Show. That's John Gray, Lester Walker, and Pierre Serrault of Ghetto Gastro. Their new book, Black Power Kitchen, co-written by Osai Endelin, is out now. They also have a podcast that shares the stories of many of the foods found in the book. It's called In the Cut. You can find more about all their products and projects at ghettogastro.com. Next week on the show, the hosts of the podcast Vibe Check join me to talk about what you can learn about your partner by the way they shop for groceries and to take your calls and settle your food disputes. That's next week. While you wait for that one, check out last week's feature on Iranian-American beer brewer Zara Tabatabai. That one also includes audio from a home brewer in Iran who's risking his life to carry on a centuries-old tradition of brewing there. That's up now. Please remember to connect with this podcast in your podcasting app. Subscribe, like, follow, favorite, whatever the button in your app on our show page is. Please press it. Thank you. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Alicia in Vermont, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. 